I'm Julia Sherbakov, and this is Impact Journey. Conversations with hidden heroes making big societal change. This is not a space for short-term solutions. It's not a show up to a couple of sessions and then move on. Inequality was not built overnight. This social construct of racism was not built overnight. So we're not going to fix it overnight. This space can be taxing. But I would ask anyone before you walk away, ask yourself, is everyone who is in this fight now, can they walk away? Because if not everyone can, then it's a sign of your privilege that you can. See, I can't walk away from this space. I wake up every morning with this face. So the racial equity space was not something I chose. It literally chose me simply because I wanted to be treated like every other human being. Today, I am happy to welcome Tarlin Say of Synergos. This is the second part of a two-part series featuring hidden heroes from Synergos. Last week, I spoke to Swati Chaudhary about fighting injustice. And this week, we get even more specific with Talyn about racial injustice. So first, about her impact. Talyn leads global programs and experiences for the Global Philanthropist Circle at Synergos. And she has been leading a series on dismantling systemic racism. About her journey, we talk about how her early influences from immigrating from Liberia to the U.S. and becoming a traveler and a writer have led her to create spaces to share stories, to take a long-term view, even if, and especially if, it may be uncomfortable. So please enjoy this conversation with Talyn Say. I would love to start on your background and your influences. You have these two themes. One is all about travel and movement, and then this other theme of telling stories. And I'd love to go back to where those two come from, from your growing up. Well, the storytelling portion, that, that's an African thing. That's a Liberian thing. Oral tradition is very important. In a lot of West African traditions, just from my own experience in Liberia, it's how history is passed down. My mom is a great storyteller and my grandmother was a great storyteller and her mom was a great storyteller. My first memories of getting all of these great stories was from my mom telling me about her childhood in Liberia because I was growing up in the States after immigrating over at a pretty young age. And she wanted to make sure that my Liberian identity stayed intact. So now when people ask me, oh, do you have memories of Africa? I feel that there are some flashes that are memories, but I can't tell the difference between that and what's a story that I was told so many times or so well that I can picture it so vividly that it feels like a memory. And that's attributed to my mom being a great storyteller. And she encouraged my love of reading and seeking out stories until I suddenly became a storyteller. And I saw that it was a way to connect people, to bring in humor, to bring in emotion, create a, a common space where everyone can live while they're being entertained by the crazy tales of a child. <laughs> so I fell in love with storytelling at a very young age. And I wonder how is that eventually connected to the constant movement in your life? Moving when you were quite young to the U.S. from Liberia and then eventually traveling around the world, especially more recently across all of these continents. Where does that need to explore come from? It sounds like a cop-out, but I would also blame my mother for that. We're going to dedicate this episode to her. <laughs> she would love that because she did move us around quite a bit. I think my love of travel really 
did start when I was young and it comes from three different places. One, I am a history buff. When you read about different countries, about different histories, you get drawn to wanting to see those places to walk where history has happened. Because I loved Greek mythology, I wanted to visit Greece because Halloween was my favorite holiday and looking into the Celtic history of it, I wanted to go to Ireland. The other is my mom was a single parent and she had to teach me very young to be independent and to be adaptable, to be able to move when needed. I always feel like if I need to, I can get up and go. The third piece is a love of diversity, which is something that was drummed into me at a very young age to be open to learning about other people and other cultures. And it was easy for me to take that on because of the whole being African and American. I do not refer to myself as African American because I'm not. I'm Liberian American. So having that weird balance always made me open to those that were different from me. And that I think then translated over to my travels when I was older. Speaking of diversity, it's so funny right now to see you, this Liberian American living in Prague. You didn't necessarily fit in perfectly anywhere. So in a way it makes you fit in everywhere. So I love that you seek out that diversity. That I do. I think it adds to my goal to be in a curious state of mind. I never want to feel like, okay, I'm done learning. I know everything I need to know. No, always want to be open to something new. Well, and I love what you're saying about constantly learning. That's another thread through your life. So I'd love to trace that a little further into your studies and then eventually into your work. Tell me about what you studied in college. My college journey. Yeah, definitely weird. I ended up going in three different directions in theology and philosophy and biomedical ethics. The theology thing. So I went to the University of St. Thomas, the private Catholic university. There was a requirement to complete three levels of theology. And I found the classes fascinating. Everyone has something to say about religion, no matter what your belief system is. So it created really rich debate. I adore that space and I think you can learn a lot. And so I took the three levels, but then I kept going. And I took a women in the church class and a history of the church class and church and science that I ended up taking enough for a major. And the same with philosophy. I took a philosophy class just because I thought it would be interesting. I want to know more about these powerful figures that shaped the moral code for their communities or that constant question of what is the right thing to do. And but I took a biomedical ethics class. Yeah, I wanted to, once again, engage in that debate because a lot of what we have today in modern science, the history is quite dark. And I also find that a lot of medical advancements, especially when it comes to human testing, they tend to target certain groups who look like me or from the countries that I'm from. So I ended up falling in love with that topic and thinking, what would a career look like if I were in a position where I did have permission to look behind the curtain and to be able to help shift people's thinking on what is right within this field. So the three seemed quite disjointed on the surface, but if you dig a bit deeper, they kind of bleed into each other. They do. And it's so interesting because one of the things that all three of those, so theology and philosophy and biomedical ethics have in common is they sort of teach you not so much what to know or even what to think, but almost like how to think and how to debate. It's almost like the meta learning that you've now taken and put together. And then somehow ended up in philanthropy. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So once now that you've got that education, you spend a lot of time working on events 
bringing people together to have those debates and those conversations. So I'm kind of curious how you ended up in that and what you learned from that part of your experience. How did I end up in events? We went to a business conference for telecommunication companies and I found myself in that conference as a guest hating it. Oh, I hated it so much. I felt like the flow of it made no sense. The presentations were too long or too short and there wasn't a lot of person-to-person connection beyond just exchanging business cards. I just didn't like it at all. And I think in my critique of that was probably my first step into, man, I would have done this differently if I was the one running this conference. Or Oh, I love it. You're like, I can do this better. Yes. So yes. I never run a conference <laughs> before and I was like, I could definitely do this better. So I went, I went ahead and got involved in events and, and conferences as a side gig in Australia. For some reason, that human-to-human connection in an event space, it felt so critical. And that makes sense because creating that type of experience, it sounds like it gave you basically the experience for your current role, which is programs and experiences at Synergos for the Global Philanthropist Circle. Can you give just a bit of an overview on what the Global Philanthropist Circle is and then what your job is in programs and experiences? Yeah. So the Global Philanthropist Circle, or GPC, is a group of individual members and member families. It was started by Peggy Dulaney, who is the chair of and the founder of Synergos, to look at a better way to do philanthropy. So she encouraged these different ways of doing inner work to you beyond just, we should give money because we're rich and people will feel bad if we don't, that you actually want to fix some global issues and leave a worthy footprint uh, on the world with the work that you've done. There's this element of systems thinking. When you think about wealthy individuals, individuals, they do have the ability to get certain people to the table because it's not just about trying to fix the poverty issue. It's about figuring out why is there a poverty issue to begin with. So you can cut a check to send to Nigeria to help build that girl's school, but it's a step further to fly to Nigeria. And because you have money and power and a well-known name, you can likely get a meeting with the Minister of Education and ask that tough question of why is there a hole in your budget where my money is even needed to build this school? So looking at the disease, not just the symptoms. And then there's that element of collaboration. What can our dollar do together? What can our platform do together? What can our voices do together? So you and that's where kind of- your job comes in, right? Yes, bringing those people together. So the GPC members make a commitment to look at all of these things and we give them spaces where they can connect with other like-minded people on certain issues. So we have a collaborative community on spiritual civilization, one on climate change, one on dialogue. Well, and in a way it echoes what you, at that first conference you went to that you wish you'd had, right? How do you bring people together and get them to engage in a way that's deeper than just like, here's my business card. And so, yeah, that makes sense that you're actually getting to do that now in this job. Yeah. My event planning career very much was started in B2B. Here in Prague, once I started working with an event company here, I was given the space of non-road mobile machinery. So farming equipment, construction equipment and things like that. Yeah. It's a very interesting field, actually. These are powerful, multi-billionaire organizations and they make decisions that can change economies. I was able to bring them together on conferences about 
emissions and climate change and battery technology instead of using diesel engines and calling them out a bit on the power that they had to push legislation along. I created a, a few roundtable discussions where I would split the room up and talk about different aspects of legislation or technology. And more than once, the question came to, let's not pretend that money doesn't move policy because it does. And you all are sitting on billions of dollars. There is no way that your money could not move legislation if you decided to take that stance. So the real question is how much responsibility are you to take in the emissions that your machines put out into the world? I love how you see your role in this. There's this domino effect of challenging people to move the conversation forward, which can then move money that moves policy and moves issues, because that really comes full circle to a lot of what you're doing at Synergos now, which is actually how I found out about you and your work in the first place was I found the conversations on dismantling systemic racism. So I'd actually love to now connect the dots on that to hear from you the journey of how those conversations came together. Well, there was definitely a reaction within Synergos and as there was across the globe to the George Floyd murder and Breonna Taylor murder, there would be many members that would suddenly want to shift funds over to the racial equity space. And we definitely need to do something. Synergos had released a statement of anti-racism as many organizations were doing, saying Black Lives Matter or We Stand Against Racism or making commitments to action. And so Synergos had made a similar statement. My own personal opinion about it was I felt it wasn't strong enough. And so I was hoping that we would be doing more. So two of my colleagues got together and they said, we should hold some spaces on diversity or racial equity, talking about race in a very raw way. They then reached out to me and said, we would love it if you could join and help us co-create and craft this space for our members. So that's how the Dismantling Systemic Racism track kind of started. So we ended up being five colleagues, five women, actually. And how has it gone since it started, how you've seen the conversations evolve, how you've seen the people in those conversations change, how the dialogue has emerged and progressed? With the first series, we chopped it up into three pieces. The first one being truth racial healing and transformation. And racial healing is a term that you don't hear very often. As we were looking into the topic and inviting the speaker for it, Dr. Gail Christopher with the National Health Collaborative, it was a term that I had not really come across before. And I was, but I, I also liked the idea of racial healing because it didn't feel like a space where we could point fingers and blame. This is not about finding out the who done it and who's at fault. It was all about how do we move forward together. And people were very receptive. And I remember the very first question that we asked was, name a moment in the past couple of months that really amazed you. And people, I think, were a bit confused, including us at first. We were like, why aren't we talking about race? But because she wanted to bring up a positive memory for people, it made sense to build trust within that community. And it turned out that many of the positive moments that people brought up ended up being about what was happening in the world anyway. Man, I felt so so energized and invigorated when I saw how many countries around the world did a Black Lives Matter protest on a global scale of people saying this is a world problem. And it reminded me so much of that quote by Martin Luther King, which is one of my favorites. And injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this was me seeing the world stand up and saying like, yeah, this is true. So many people ended up uh, having their moments of amazement be circled around that. Following these sessions you've done on dismantling 
systemic racism, I've also heard you say two different things in terms of what it takes to create a space like that and make it a, a really strong space. There's a part of it that is making room for the positive. But on the other hand, there's also a part of it about making people a bit uncomfortable and questioning how they may have been approaching this issue. And so I'm curious, how have you seen those two dimensions playing out in these conversations? You know, I think everyone understands, no matter what your background is, or where you're from, or what your wealth status, I think everyone understands that no one changes from a place of comfort. You will not change unless you're uncomfortable, unless you're upset, unless something is bothering you. That is one key thing I would suggest to anyone if you're going to talk about a topic that can be very triggering, that can make people defensive. You have to set the space and let people know this is what we're trying to create for you. And it gives them a sense of responsibility to co-create that space. So having touchstones is a great way to try and create that And balance. what's an and example of that? How did you prepare them to step into the space? Well, Dr. Christopher had her own set of touchstones, but we've continued with some of our own. One common thing that we do with a lot of scenario spaces, no matter what the topic is, is ask people to bring their whole selves to the space. So that means you bring your curiosity, you bring your knowledge, you bring your guilt, you bring your achievements, your failures, all of it. And I, I love what you said about that because it's one is preparing people to bring themselves. And then another thing is modeling that too. So for example, I saw Peggy Delaney, who's founder of Synergos, being very vulnerable and open and sharing questions and sharing doubts. So I feel like that sets a tone. Absolutely. You have to lead by example. If you feel uncomfortable within the space, you're going to make everyone else uncomfortable. Just watching the series move forward, I would say that that was so successful because we had built this community already. They had seen us have very raw and real conversations. I mean, I almost cried in the second session as I was talking about the very first time I was seen as an other. And going back to that painful memory, the first time I was referred to as you people and being judged on something that I clearly could not control my skin color versus my character. And so they had seen those of us that were leading the space be raw and real and invited them to be raw and real. And so by the time we got to the third session, people felt a sense of community. They felt a sense of safety. They got very raw and very real. This was amazing. Hearing, again, stories. That's what yeah, I was going to say. At the end of the day, it's back to telling stories. Story. Sharing stories. Giving someone the chance to share their story. You acknowledge them, you humanize them, you show them that they matter. They become more than just a sound bite. They become more than just a Twitter feed. They become more than just radical protests. They become more than just a vote in the box. They become a human. And that to the core of it is how we need to see each other, not as threats, not as the other, but it's human. <laughs> and in a way, it comes back to what you were saying initially about telling stories, about diversity, about listening, about bringing people together. So all your work in events in terms of bringing them together at a level beyond that superficial level. It's really interesting to see all those themes of your life now come together in this work you're doing now. I didn't even see that. Like I feel very twilight zone right now. Like you're making a bunch of connections that I didn't even, that I didn't even make. I'm like, oh man, she's right. There's all these different things that do kind of feed into each other. I'm learning today too. This is awesome. Good. I'm more 
than anything, just want to thank you for telling your story, the learnings from especially the racial justice dialogues you've been having. I'd love to link to those. Will there be more? There will be. We made a commitment to keep the conversation going and to keep creating these spaces, looking at different angles and aspects of systemic racism. But also the thing that I would want to say to anyone when it comes to racial equity, this is not a space for short-term solutions. It's not a show up to a couple of sessions and then move on. If you're going to step into this space in an authentic way, it is a long-term conversation. It is a long-term fight. Inequality was not built overnight. This social construct of racism was not built overnight. So we're not going to fix it overnight. And I would say the same about climate change. I would say the same about gender equality. It is a long-term commitment. This space can be taxing on your energy where you're like, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. But I would ask anyone before they say, I can't, I I don't have the time or the energy for this too much. Before you walk away, ask yourself, is everyone who is in this fight now, can they walk away? Because if not everyone can, then it's a sign of your privilege that you can. See, I can't walk away from this space. I wake up every morning with this face. So the racial equity space was not something I chose. It literally chose me simply because I wanted to be treated like every other human being. I am unable to walk away from this fight. I literally have no choice. Thanks for bringing that up. It's a good reminder in terms of what it takes to work on some of these really difficult issues. It's going to take being uncomfortable and it's going to be long and it's going to be slow and incremental, but that's the game. It's a long-term conversation, but the best part is that people are talking and they are having conversation. And we certainly hope to see that space grow and to continue to see the outputs of people moving the conversation forward within their own lives. Speaking of conversation, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me into this space. It's such an amazing reminder to talk about this stuff, to re-up my own energy reserves onto why I choose to stand at the forefront of this. So thank you so much. A big thanks to Talon. You can follow her work and the Dismantling Systemic Racism series in the links in the show notes. This is Impact Journey. See you next time.